You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. It was a Monday night, and I had the evening off from school, so I didn't have to go to work after school, which I normally did my junior year in high school. My friend did not have the evening off, and he was relying upon me for a ride home from work that night. We worked at the same place, and he was living with me in my home at the time. He got off work at 8 o'clock, and the only problem was that Monday night football did not get over until 9.30. Now at first you may think, at first blush, you may think that it was awfully cold-hearted and insensitive of me to make him stand out in the cold, fall, crisp air for an hour and a half while I waited for the Monday night football game to get over with. But it was my team that was playing. So once you understand that, you can realize that it was not at all insensitive. And after ignoring about a dozen phone calls, begging and pleading me to come into town and pick him up from work, The Monday night football got over with at about 9.30, and so I jumped in my truck and raced into town to pick him up. I used the term raced for a purpose, because an Idaho State law enforcement specialist pulled me over down by the Elks Golf Course. And in the excitement of the moment, I neglected to remove my radar detector from my dashboard and put it under the seat, which I had practiced doing several times, just so that when the opportunity came that I would not neglect to do that. And police officers do not like to see those things, I gather now. And so he asked me, do you know why I pulled you over? Slow night? I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking. He said, I clocked you doing 56 miles an hour in a 45 mile an hour zone. Now, what I did not tell him was that the radar detector had allowed me to get my speed down from 75 miles an hour to a mere 56 miles an hour. That was a little piece of information that I didn't think needed to be in play at the moment, so I kept that to myself. And I got my $40 speeding ticket, and he let me go. I went into town and picked up my friend, and the next day I showed up for work, and I told my boss, who was also a good friend of mine, what had happened the previous night and how I had got a speeding ticket, and um, it was going to cost me $40, and I didn't want to pay the $40. So he went on to give me some advice. He said, I'll tell you how I get out of speeding tickets all the time. I said, how's that? He said, you, you do two things. First of all, you wait until the very last day that you have to respond to the ticket, the, very, the, the due date, so to speak, of that ticket that's stamped on the outside ticket. Whatever that is, you go in right before closing time to the courthouse, and that's when you go in to pay your ticket or to, to set a court appointment because a lot of times police officers will neglect to turn in their ticket stubs And if you go in right before closing to deal with your ticket and they have no record of it, they can't contact the police officer to get him to turn in their ticket stub and you'll get off. But if the police officer has turned in his ticket stub, then the second thing you do is you set a court appointment. And you set an appointment to go to court because chances are really good that the police officer will not show up for his court hearing. Something will come up, he'll get called out, a family emergency, and he won't show up and therefore they won't have the 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 hearing, and you'll get off. He says, I get off this way all the time. Now, for the law enforcement officers who are among us, I'm not suggesting that these things are true. 
And to the teenagers and the young children who are among us, I'm not suggesting that these things are true. I am merely reporting the advice that I received. So I went down to the courthouse on the last day that I had to respond to my ticket. I brought my ticket with me and I put it up on the counter right before closing time. And I said, do you have any record of this? She looked and sure enough, I want to set a court appointment then. I want a hearing date for this to protest this ticket. Now, friends, I knew I was guilty. But I wanted my day in court anyway. I was hoping that I would get off. So she set a court date for me. And I went to court, and when I showed up, wouldn't you know the police officer was there in the courtroom? He had the audacity to show up for the hearing. So he took the stand, and he took the oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help him God. And then he testified how he had caught me speeding 56 miles an hour in a 45-mile-an-hour zone with a radar detector on my dash. Now, I'm no Perry Mason, but I could tell right at the outset that this was not looking good for my case. Then I got up to take the stand, and I had to swear an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help me, God. And I looked at the judge who was sitting next to me, and I looked out at the courtroom and all of these attorneys and witnesses and police officers and the police officer, and I suddenly, at the most inopportune time, had this rush of conviction and guilt that came crashing in upon me. And they started to ask me questions. Were you traveling more than 45 miles an hour on such and such a date? Yes, I was. Were you going 56 miles an hour on such and such a date? Well, I don't know if it was exactly 56. I was going over 45. I don't know exactly what the number was. and I tried to sort of squirm my way out of it. There was no jury there. If there had been a jury there, they wouldn't have even had to leave the room to reach a verdict. I knew I was guilty. They knew I was guilty. Everybody present knew I was guilty. It was obvious for everyone to see. And that was the verdict of the judge. And I had to pay my $40. Now, I went to court for for two reasons. First of all, because I was kind of interested to see what the inside of a courtroom looked like and what court proceedings looked like. I was a junior in high school, and I had never been on the stand. and I had never been in a courtroom. I had never seen any of these things firsthand. So I kind of viewed it as an educational experience. And I got an education. I had to skip a class in school to make my court date, which was an added bonus. I almost appealed the decision just so I could have another court date and skip another class. But the second reason I went to court is because I wanted to get off. I wanted to get away with what I had done, knowing that I was guilty. In fact, I knew that I was guiltier than the cop knew I was guilty. I had been going 75 miles an hour in a 45 mile an hour zone, and I knew it full well, but I wanted to get off. And I was banking on one of two things happening. First, that the witness to my crime would not show up for my trial, and I would get off. Second, that the judge, if the witness did show up, that the judge would be lenient and that he would let me off. And friends, if you talk to people today about sin, about God, about judgment, about their death, and the eventual standing before God in His court, people today are banking on the same two things. They are hoping, number one, that there will be no trial because the judge will not show up. In other words, God does not exist. That's what they're banking on. They're banking on dying and having God not be there. The witness to their crimes being absent. 
Or, if God is there, they are hoping the second thing, that He will be lenient upon them. And that He will look at them and say, yes, you were doing 56 miles an hour in a 45 mile an hour zone, but we all know that you obeyed the speed limit most of the week prior to that. And so when we weigh your good deeds against your bad deeds, you're not that bad. Come on in. In Acts chapter 17, the audience that Paul was preaching to made the same two mistakes. There were the Epicureans and the Stoics. They were banking on the fact that there would be no trial. That they would die and God would not be there. The Stoics believed that God was in all of us and all of us were in God. And so when you die, you just are absorbed into this cosmic consciousness. You become part of the God awareness and there will be no judgment. That's what the Stoics were counting on. The Epicureans were counting on the fact that God, if He was there, whoever He may be and wherever He may be, when we died, there would be no judgment because God is not involved in our life. He is removed from everything that happens and He will not hold us to account. The Epicureans and the Stoics were banking on that first thing. That there would be no trial. That the witness to their crimes would not show up for court. The idol worshippers in Athens in Acts chapter 17 were banking on the second thing. They were banking on leniency because they worshipped all of these gods who were debauched and depraved and wicked and sinful just like they. They worshipped gods who were just like themselves. The god Bacchus, a drunken god and the god of revelry. Goddesses and gods of fertility. Sinful, fleshly, revelous gods. Violent, murdering gods. These were the gods that they worshipped. And so when they stood before these gods, how could these gods who participated and practiced the very things that they did hold them to a higher standard? They were banking on leniency. They would get off because their gods were guilty of the same things that they were guilty of. Now in Acts chapter 17, Paul has rebuked and debunked their idolatrous and false notions about God as Creator. He has rebuked and debunked their idolatrous and false notions about God as the sustainer of all things. And now in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, Paul comes to the third attribute of God that he focuses on in this message, and that is God as the judge of all things. So you need your Bibles open to Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, and we'll read those two verses together. In fact, we will read all the way through the end of verse 34. Reaching the conclusion of the whole matter, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance... God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer and others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Paul has talked about how God is the creator of all things, and as creator, he has ownership rights of us, and he has the right to demand anything of us that he wills. Then God moved on, or Paul moved on to how God is the sustainer of all things, and since he sustains us, he's very near to us, and he holds us responsible to seek him, which men don't do. And instead of seeking Him, men fashion for themselves idols whom they worshipped who are much like themselves, and they turn from the one true and living God. And now Paul drops the hammer. Not only is God the Creator of all things and the Sustainer of all things, but third, God is the Judge 
of all things. And I want you to notice four things that Paul tells us about this judgment. Beginning in verse 30, the first thing that Paul tells us is about the promise of the judgment. Verse 30, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. The word therefore tells us this is Paul's conclusion. He has built a case. God is creator. He is sustainer. He is near. He holds us responsible. Men are sinners. Then you get down to verse 30. Therefore, everything that he has said in the message up to now, he has been building a case. And he is bringing it now to a conclusion. And it is in his conclusion that Paul says, God in previous times has overlooked the times of ignorance. Now understand what the Apostle Paul is not saying. When Paul says, God overlooked the times of ignorance, he's not saying that God excused your sin. He's not saying God didn't notice your sin. He's not saying that God made excuses for your sin or that He shrugged your sin off. That's not what he's saying at all. What Paul is saying is that until now, God has not brought to bear upon you the judgment that your sins deserve. He has looked the other way, so to speak. In Acts 14.16, Paul said to the people in Lystra, in generations gone by, God permitted all the nations to go their own way. Romans chapter 3, verse 25, Paul says, in God's forbearance, He looked past, or He passed over the sins which were previously committed. All of these sins that you have committed, Paul says, they have brought to, to bear upon you a just wrath and a just judgment. But until this time, God has not punished you swiftly and completely and permanently for the sins that you have committed. In a sense, He has looked the other way. And you've gone your own way and done your own thing. And the kindness and the goodness of God, which should lead you to repentance, hasn't led you to repentance. The grace of God, which has suspended judgment for a time, has not led you to repentance. And man, rather than seeking after God and turning to God and worshiping Him, instead he heaps up for himself idols and he stores up wrath, adding crime upon crime, guilt upon guilt, offense upon offense against a holy God, until the day when God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And Paul says God has overlooked those times. He has not brought to bear upon you the judgment that your sins deserve. But then Paul says, now God is declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent, that they should turn from their sins. It's as if the Apostle Paul is saying, don't think for a moment that just because God has not judged your sins uh, justly and permanently and completely till now that He won't. Don't make the mistake of imposing upon the grace of God or assuming upon the mercy of God or thinking because I have not been justly, wrathly condemned for my sin till now, it will always be like this. Paul says until now God has put off your judgment, but here's your opportunity to receive clemency, forgiveness, acquittal. This is your out this is how you get off from your sin. You have turned from God by being idolaters and fashioning idols of the hands and idols of the mind and idols of the heart. And you have bowed down before Him and worshipped Him and not sought Him and not turned to Him and assumed upon His grace. But there's coming a day. There's coming a day in which God will judge the world in righteousness. And don't think that just because you've had mercy till now that there will be no justice to come. 
Don't presume upon the mercy. Don't presume upon the grace. If you've been judged permanently and completely for all of your sin, you've never experienced that judgment, have you? From the moment of your birth until today, God has, if you're not in Christ and not a believer, God has withheld the judgment that your sin justly deserves. Now, if you're a believer and if you're in Christ, God has not withheld any of that justice or judgment that your sin deserves. He has poured it out on His Son who took it in your place. But to these people, Paul says, God has looked the other way. Now He commands you, turn from your sin. You want clemency? Turn from your sin. God offers us forgiveness on His terms, not ours. And the terms of His forgiveness is repentance. Without repentance, you can have no forgiveness. If you won't turn from your sin, you won't be forgiven of your sin. Because they go hand in hand. You cannot hold on to your sin and be forgiven and cleansed of your sin at the same time. You must let go of it. You must change your mind about it. Change your direction about it. Turn from it. And turn from idols to God to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. And if there's no repentance, then there's no forgiveness. That's the terms of forgiveness. And Paul lays that out. And then he says, God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. There is a day that has been set on God's calendar. It is, it is marked. It is noted. It cannot be put off. It will not be canceled due to extenuating circumstances. There will be no problem with the witnesses to your crimes showing up to testify against you. That is a day that has been set and cannot be altered. And every breath that you breathe brings you one step closer to that day that has been set, fixed. God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Peter says, But by His Word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire and kept for the day of judgment. Did you hear that? The day of judgment. Romans chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, But because of your stubbornness, an unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Romans 2.16 On that day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. There's a lot that we are told about, uh, told in Scripture about that day. But the one thing that we're not told is when that day is. Because if we knew when the day was then we would repent right before that day. But Paul says there's a day fixed. Therefore, it's imperative that you repent today. God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent. Because you may be banking on the fact that that day is a long way off. You're a fool if that's the case. Because it may be very near. You don't know when that day is. And so you repent today. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, what? Judgment. This is written in stone. You will die once, and after that you face judgment. Ecclesiastes 11.9, know that God will bring you to judgment for all of these things. Ecclesiastes 12.13 and 14, the conclusion when all has been heard is this, fear God and keep His commandments. Because this applies to every person, for God will bring every act to judgment. Everything, whether it is hidden or whether it is revealed, whether it's good or whether it's evil. 
every act, a complete judgment on that day. That is God's promise to you and I of judgment to come. But I want you to notice the second thing Paul says. Not only does he give us a promise of the judgment to come, but he tells us what the pattern for the judgment is going to be. It's going to be a judgment in righteousness. It's going to be a judgment in righteousness. Complete, perfect, total, un- unvarnished, unpolluted, pure righteousness. Now for me, friends, that is good news. And I'll tell you why that is good news. Because I know that the standard for my judgment is complete and total righteousness. And that standard is not going to change. So I know ahead of time what it is that God is going to require of me when I stand before Him. And you know what it is? Complete righteousness. Not just the absence of sin, but an active righteousness. That's what God's requirement for me is. That's not going to change. So the reason I rest in that is because I know that the thing that God has required of me, He has provided for me. He has not only provided the freedom and the forgiveness from my sins, but He has provided for me in Christ a perfect righteousness. So that in the presence of God right now, in the presence of God in eternity, and on Judgment Day, I will stand before Him completely righteous. Not because I have practiced righteousness, and not because I have created my own righteousness, and not because I have somehow been able to acquire righteousness, but because God has given to me perfect righteousness. Not on the basis of my deeds, but on the basis of saving faith. So that when I stand before Him, I have not only the forgiveness of my sins, but all of the righteousness that He requires of me. It is going to be a judgment in righteousness. Psalm 9, verse 8. He will judge the world in righteousness. Psalm 96, verse 13. The Lord is coming and He is coming to judge the earth and He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Psalm 98, verse 9. The Lord is coming to judge the earth and He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now that's good news. Before the judgment of God, there will be no mistrial, no lack of justice, no deception, no getting off. The witnesses will all show up. The only witness that counts will be there. The judge will be present and there will be no possibility and no opportunity for judgment and justice not to be done. There will be no lack of justice and there will be no lack of knowledge. People are not going to be punished for going 56 when they were going 75. Everything that you have done will be laid out on the table. And there will be no need for anybody to say, well, we didn't have all of the evidence or we didn't have all of the knowledge. It will be a perfect and complete and holy and righteous judgment. Perfect righteousness. That's the standard by which I'll be judged. See, friends, it won't be human terms and human standards that I'll be judged by. If it were merely human standards of righteousness, I think I could pass the bar. Just to be quite honest with you, Humanly speaking, I'm not nearly as bad as some people. Many of you are not nearly as bad as some people. There are a lot of things that I could do as a sinner that I have never done. There are a lot of ways that I could have expressed my depravity that I have never expressed my depravity. I've never tortured babies. I've never killed anyone. I've never had an affair. There's a lot, I've never stole a million dollars. 
I never lied under oath. Even when I was under oath, I ended up telling the truth and trying to dance around the truth, but I never came out and had to redefine words and, and lie under or oath in order to get out from underneath of it. There are a lot of things that I could have done that I have never done. There are a lot of good things that I have done that other people have never done. I've been faithful to my wife. Other men have not done that. I have gone to church. I have given of my money. I have served the Lord. Other people have not done that. You see, I could stand before the Lord and I think I could get off if it were human standards of righteousness. And I could just hope that I was standing next to Adolf Hitler on Judgment Day because I would say, you know, Lord, I've done a lot of bad things. I did get caught going 56, and let's just, for the sake of record, you and I both know I was going 75. But this guy tried to wipe out an entire race of people, killed a lot of people. And Hitler might say, well, hey, I may have killed a lot of people, but I was never caught speeding like this guy. I, I didn't lust as many times as Jim did. Well, if you would have lived as long as I did, you might have lusted as many times as I did. But you didn't live as long as I did. you you got to do better than that, Adolf. You killed six million people. And the Lord might say, you know, humanly speaking, Jim's a pretty good guy. He's not nearly as bad as Adolf Hitler. So Adolf, you go to hell and Jim can go to heaven. But then Adolf would say, comparatively speaking, I'm nothing. Stalin killed 20 million people, and some estimates put it up next to 60 million of his own people. Comparatively speaking, the Lord would say, Hitler is, Stalin is 10 times worse than Hitler. Maybe Hitler isn't that bad of a guy. Stalin is really bad. So Stalin can go to hell and Hitler can go to heaven. But Lord, there will, people, there will be no exchange like that before the Lord. Because it doesn't matter whether you're you or me or Stalin or Hitler, we'll all be judged by the same standard. Not from each other. And that same standard is absolute, perfect righteousness. And it doesn't matter whether you're Stalin or Jim Osmond, we both fall infinitely short of that standard. Infinitely. There is no difference in the sin between Stalin and Jim Osmond. We are both equally depraved. And apart from the grace of God, I would be a Stalin. And if you don't think that's true of you, you're deceived. We both fall infinitely short of the standard. That's the pattern for our judgment. Third thing I want you to notice that Paul gives to us, not only the promise of judgment and the pattern for the judgment, but he tells us who this judge is. He will judge the world in righteousness. Verse 31 through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This man, now Paul has already talked about the first Adam in, up in verse 26. Through one man he made all the nations. Now he has in mind a different man through the second Adam, that is Christ. He's going to judge all the nations. Through the first man he made all people. Through the second man he's going to judge all people. The first man brought all of world, the world into sin and depravity and wickedness and ruined his whole race. The second man lived righteously and perfectly, and he has been appointed as the judge of all people in all nations. So you and I may not know what the day of the judgment is, but we certainly know who it is that we're going to stand before. We are all going to stand before this man who has been appointed as judge of the living and the dead. Now the ironic thing about Paul bringing up Christ in this sermon is this. In the beginning of the sermon, Paul says, I am going to describe to you and define for you the unknown God. I was noticing as I walked through your marketplace that you have idols. And one of the idols has the inscription, 
to the unknown God. It is this unknown God that I'm going to proclaim to you. Now he gets to the end of his message and guess what he does? He gives to us the person in whom God can be known. I'm going to explain the unknown God and he closes by giving to us the person who reveals to us in bodily form perfectly, completely, the essence and the nature and the character of God. It's that man whom he is appointed as judge of the living and the dead. John chapter 5, not even the Father judges anyone, but he has committed all judgment to the Son, Jesus said. Jesus said in John 5.27, He gave him, speaking of himself, the Father gave to the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God who will judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Who's the judge? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Who's appearing? Jesus Christ. The Father has committed all judgment to the Son. It's not going to be the Father that we stand before. It will be the Son that we stand before. He is the judge of the living and the dead. And the Father has committed all judgment to Him. Acts chapter 10, Peter said to Cornelius, He ordered us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed as judge of the living and the dead. Now I want you to listen to how John describes this in Revelation chapter 20. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Judgment. By whom? He who sat upon the great white throne. The Father's committed all judgment to the Son. So Paul tells us who the person is that has been appointed as the judge. The fourth thing that I want you to notice is the proof of coming judgment that Paul offers. God has given proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Now you might say, Paul, I think it's very interesting that you believe that there's a judgment to come. As Epicureans and as Stoics, we don't believe that. As idolaters, we certainly don't believe that. We're hoping that the judge is not going to show up, or we're hoping that the judge, if he does show up, is going to be extremely lenient, and that we're all going to get off either way. And the fact that you believe that there's a judgment, and that it's going to be in righteousness through this God that you worship, that is, that's really good for you. And if that makes you feel good, and that's true for you, then, <clears throat> then that's true for you. And I'm glad you believe that. But what evidence do I have, what proof do I have that your message is the true message? What proof can you give to me that there is actually going to be a day on which God will judge every man through this Christ that you're proclaiming? Paul says the proof is this. God has not done anything in a closet. He has before all men raised His Son from the dead. He is declared to be the Son of God by resurrection from the dead. Now, it's inevitable that Paul would eventually get to the resurrection because no preaching of any gospel is complete. No gospel message is complete 
without a mention of the resurrection. Paul has to get that in because that is the Gospel. Not the love of God. Not a better life. Not purpose. Not meaning. Not feelings. And Paul doesn't hang any of his proof for his message upon any experience that he has had, any feeling that he has had, or upon his testimony. I want you to notice what Paul does. He takes this entire message about the nature of God, the nature of man, the nature of sin, and he hangs it all upon one factual historical event. What is it? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything is hung on that peg. That's where he hangs it all. He does this in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not risen, your faith is in vain. You're still in your sin. And we're to be pitied because we've preached that Christ is risen if indeed He's not risen. The whole Gospel, the whole Christian faith, the whole message hangs on that one thing. He is risen. You want proof that there's a coming judgment? God has given you proof. He raised His Son from the dead. That's your proof. Now friends, there's a lot of good historical evidence to believe that Jesus Christ is risen. There's an empty tomb. There's grave clothes in the tomb. The Roman guard, the contingent of soldiers, fled the scene of the tomb. The stone was rolled away. There's the proclamation of the angel. And not to mention over 500 eyewitnesses who said they saw a risen Christ. Plenty of evidence to believe. And God has publicly demonstrated that there's going to be a day because He has raised this one from the dead. And Jesus, when He said that the Father has committed all judgment to the Son, He bases that statement upon the fact that the Father gave to Him the power to have life in Himself. And that Jesus Christ Himself has the power to give life to whomever He wishes, to lay down His life and to take it up again. And Jesus said, because I have been given resurrection authority and power, God has the Father has committed all judgment to Me. And now Paul says, the proof of the judgment rests in the fact that God has raised Him from the dead. Now if the resurrection is not true, everything else Paul says is meaningless. Acts chapter 17. The whole message hangs upon this one thing. And if he's not risen, then there is no judgment. If he's not risen, then there's no judge going to show up. There's no witness to your crimes. If he's not risen, he doesn't have the authority to sit on the great white throne and to speak the Word and have all of the dead come out before Him and stand before Him to be judged in righteousness. He doesn't have that authority if He's not risen. Friends, if He's not risen, then eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die and you go into nothingness. So enjoy your life. If He's not risen, but if He is, then everything changes. If He is risen, then He will sit on the throne. He will sit on David's throne and He will rule and He will reign. And the dead, small and great, will come and stand before Him and be judged in righteousness. If He is risen, then there is coming a day when the dead will hear His voice and they will come forth, some a resurrection to judgment, to damnation, and others a resurrection to eternal life. If He is risen. Paul hangs it all on that. Now I want you to notice the response that some people had. Verse 33, or sorry, 32, Luke tells us when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. <laughs> Come on, Paul. Resurrection of the dead. Others believed. But notice what happens. First of all, they sneer. 
Now, they're fine with Paul talking about creation and God being the creator. They don't mention anything when Paul talks about how God sustains everything and how he needs nothing and he's not served by human hands as if he needs anything. God is autonomous and he doesn't need us. He is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. Paul can even talk about sin and the wickedness of idolatry and the coming judgment, but it is not until he mentions the resurrection that they sneer. They tolerate creation. They tolerate God as sustainer. They'll tolerate even the idea of a judgment. But when Paul mentions the resurrection, (laughs) come on, that's when they said, Paul, get out of here. you got to be kidding us. It's the resurrection that they can't stomach. Flies against the intellectual elitism that was present in the Areopagus. It's the resurrection that they can't swallow. It's the resurrection that they can't get over. Everything else is fine. But if... Christ is risen from the dead, then they know there are implications to that. So when he mentions resurrection, that's when the sermon is over. Now listen, folks, if Paul wanted to gain converts, if he was after followers, if he wanted simply people to come behind him and join his movement and start believing like he is, he never would have said anything about the resurrection. Particularly in this setting, and here's why. According to legend, and I didn't tell you this about the Areopagus, According to legend, when the Areopagus, hundreds of years before Paul, was officially founded by the goddess Athena, it was inscribed that Apollo at this, the god God Apollo at this founding ceremony of the Areopagus said these words, Once a man dies and the earth drinks up his blood, there is no resurrection. That was said by the god Apollo at the founding of the Areopagus. That was their central creed. That was the foundational premise upon which the court was founded. There is no resurrection. Do you think Paul was ignorant of that fact? He knew it. But he doesn't hold back from saying and promoting and preaching the one thing that he knew they would not be able to accept. Why does he do that? Because without the resurrection, there is no gospel. There is no message. If you don't mention the resurrection, you haven't presented a gospel that people can believe in. The one thing they get hung up on is the one thing Paul has to insist upon. And he knows they're not going to be able to accept it. Their founding creed for that court is there is no resurrection. So at the end of his message, Paul says God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's why they sneered. The Greeks believed in the immortality of the soul, but they could not accept the immortality of the body. They didn't want to take a body with them. Once they died, they wanted to get rid of their body. Paul's presented a bodily resurrection. And that's what they get hung up on. But some, most sneered, some believed. Look what Luke says in verse 32 and 33. Some began to sneer, but others said, we'll hear you again concerning this. And so Paul went out of their midst. I think the Apostle Paul knew it's over now. I have presented my message. They've rejected it or accepted it. So Paul leaves their midst. Verse 34, some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others. There were a couple of people who believed in Athens. Now, what I want you to notice about the response, friends, is how marginal it is. You notice this? When when Paul was in Berea, you know what Luke said? A good number of God-fearing Greeks believed him. And there was a church started in Berea. When Paul went to Thessalonica, you know what Luke says? Many believed on the message that Paul preached. When he gets to Athens, what does Luke say? There's a couple. There's a couple of people who believed him. There's Dionysius, who was an Areopagite. He was a member of the Areopagus. He was sat on the high court. He believed. 
And then there was Demaris and with them just a couple. Now, I don't think Paul was at all disappointed with the turnout. Because, friends, to be quite honest, the, the problem doesn't rest with Paul's message. Some people have said Paul compromised his message and started to preach from Greek philosophy and Greek theology and putting it in terms that they could understand and, and it fell flat and nobody believed. The problem is not with the message. This is a brilliant adaptation of the truth of God and the nature of God and the works of God and salvation to a Greek, unbelieving, pagan, philosophical, intellectual audience. A wonderful message. The problem is not in the message. The problem is in the soil in which the message was sown. They had hard, unrepentant, blinded hearts. Not like the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks and the Gentiles. Uh, the God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue. They were hard. This is not good soil for the gospel. So there's only a few that believe. Now, Paul's not disappointed because he understands this. And, and we've said this before, and I want you to remember this again. The response to the message is not our work. It's not my job. It's not your job. Our job is to sow, our job is to water, and our job is to pray. We leave the fruit, we leave the results, we leave the ramifications of it up to the Lord. We preach the message, we teach the truth, we proclaim, we witness, we evangelize, we share Christ, and then we hands off and we let the Lord do His work with His Word because that's the realm of the Spirit of God. There's no record of a church starting in Athens for 100 years after Paul visited there. There's a few people who believe that there was no church founded. Luke doesn't mention one. And we have no historical record of a church that existed there for almost 100 years. Is that a bad response? It's the response that the Lord wanted there. That's what it boils down to. And don't be disappointed, friends, if your efforts come up flat by your measure. That may be the response that God wanted in that situation. Your job is to share the message and let the Lord do with His Word what He wants. So Paul left... Athens. He went out from amongst them. Chapter 18, verse 1, he went to Corinth. There's better soil in Corinth. The soil in Athens is hard. That's hard slugging. And you and I wouldn't have been able to do any better in that situation than Paul did. But there's more fertile soil in Corinth. And Paul goes to Corinth next. And we'll look next week at what awaits him in the city of Corinth. Father, we thank you for your word, the encouragement that it offers. We thank you, Father, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That Jesus Christ has taken our punishment our sin upon Himself, and that we need not fear standing before You. Instead of being our judge, You are our advocate. You are our defense. And it is the blood of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ and the righteousness of Christ that we have by faith. We thank You that we have appropriated that by Your grace, and thus we do not fear standing before our Lord. It will be for us a day of rejoicing and pleasure because we know Christ. We know the judge, and we know that the judge has taken our sins upon himself. We thank you for that fact and for this wonderful salvation that is ours in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.